I would just like to invite you into your Bibles, so if you don't mind, grab a pew Bible. It's page 801. It's Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, page 801. And while you're looking that up, I just want to thank you for who you are as a church. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of other preachers, but I listen to Brooks Wilson on a regular basis, and I think you are enormously blessed to have somebody who gives you relevant, challenging, accurate. Pay attention. But I also want to thank you for what you're doing in this community. It's really easy for churches to get lousy reputations, and it's really hard for churches to establish a reputation in a community that people respect, and you have a respected reputation. So thank you for what you're doing in this town. This is not about driving down a particular street and seeing a building. It's talking about, I'm talking about the kind of people you are investing in a community, making yourself known, living out Jesus in the presence of other people so that they know that Jesus is something other than what most churches represent him to be. I'm grateful, so thank you. I want to go to Matthew chapter 20. I just want to simply walk down through the text, if it's all right, spend a little time looking at this particular story of Jesus. Uh, if you notice Matthew chapter 20, verse number 1, and as we get ready for this parable, I want to give you, this is, this is my deep theological response to parables. Hmm. Not quite so deep. What? Are you kidding? What are you saying? Parables are like that, you know? They just kind of, they just cause you to, nah, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? All right, so Matthew chapter 20, here we go. Four, and that's as far as I get. Not, not, it's not that four is such a hard word. It's just that four always means that something happened before this that made this happen. And so if I'm really going to understand whatever it is that Matthew 20 gets at, I'm going to have to back up in the text and figure out where the four came from. And it comes actually from back in chapter 19 where this whole paragraph actually begins. So just back up a, few pa a, few, uh, a page and look at chapter 19. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. He entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. He's got this, this bunch of people around him in this teaching moment. And it says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful? Now, as soon as I see the word Pharisees, I automatically bring up all of the stuff that I have ever imagined about Pharisees, and I, I kind of wrinkle my brow, and I think, okay, here we go again, because Jesus honestly is in a lot of conflict in the Gospels with the Pharisees. And unfortunately, we're not very fair to the Pharisees. We've kind of pigeonholed them in a certain way, and they're really not the way most of us think about them. They were dedicated followers of God. They wanted God to be honored. They did everything they could to make sure that people did the stuff that would be pleasing and honoring to God. Now, we may not like some of the methods that they went about. We might not like the way that they did it, and they are often in conflict with Jesus over those things. But, but don't over-interpret the Pharisees. These people want God to be honored. So they're asking a legitimate question of Jesus. 
And part of the problem is they, they don't agree with Jesus. They're not in with Jesus at this point, so they're asking this question, Jesus, is it lawful? That's an important word in this text. It's going to come up again a little later in the text, and I think it'll have more meaning when we get to it there. Is it lawful? Now, Jesus starts talking about marriage and divorce, and he has this crowd listening to these unusual teachings. They've been told certain things about this, but Jesus kind of confounds it a little bit, and, and he says some things that are kind of unexpected about marriage and divorce. And then, and then there's this children thing down here in verse 13. They're bringing children to him, and the disciples are trying to push these children away because you don't want to bother Jesus. Jesus is important, and he's doing important stuff. And, and children didn't matter. In a first century culture, they just didn't count. They weren't worth anything. And so you just don't bother the rabbi with something as simple as a child. And yet Jesus, again, does the unexpected. Bring them. Come. Bring them over. This is, these are the kind of people that, that I'm interested in. And then a young man walks up, and he's a wealthy young man, the text tells us, and he wants to know, and he asks this really important question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus interacts with him and basically says, well, keep the law, and he says, well, I've been doing that all of my life. And then Jesus turns the tables on him and says, so go and sell everything you have. It's like, oh, are you kidding me? Here's this unexpected response that Jesus gives, and the, and the young man does what I suppose most of us might do. He turns and he goes the other way because, as the text says, he's a very wealthy man, and he's not, he's not sure that he's ready to make that step. And, and, and this, this confounds, then, the disciples. If you, if you come down a little further in chapter 19, verse 23, the, Jesus says to the disciples, I, I say to you, it's it's only with difficulty that a rich person can enter the kingdom of heaven. It, everybody knew in the first century that wealth was a mark of God's blessing. And so if you're a rich man, you're obviously right with God because God is blessing you. And here Jesus says, go and sell everything you have. Do just the opposite of what you would expect. And they're going, well, if that's true, what about us? We've given up everything. And Jesus says, yes, and you'll have everything that you need. And then he does this interesting reversal in verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Huh? Hmm? What? Now he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master. Well, that's not exactly what he said. What he said is the kingdom of heaven is like a man a master. Now, the English translation doesn't do that for us because we really don't need it, except that he's really making sure that you pay attention to the important character here. The kingdom of heaven is like a man, a master. He says it twice to get your attention, to make sure that you put your focus in the right place. This is about, well, this is about exactly what the text says. It's like a master of a house an owner of a vineyard. Except that's not what your Bible probably says right above that, right? If your Bible, in fact, I know if you're looking at the pew Bibles, that's not what it says because it says it's a parable about the, 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 the vineyard workers. <laughs> in fact, my Bible says laborers in the vineyard, except that's not what it's about. Except that's what happens to us. We read the label and we go, oh, we must be looking for us. We're, we're the labor. This, this is a parable about us. No, it's not. It's a parable about the owner of the vineyard. 
And if we get distracted looking for ourselves or looking for the laborers in this text, we're going to miss the point because the point is there was a man who was an owner of a vineyard. He's the key character. All right, so he goes out in the morning. This is early, 6 o'clock a.m. He shows up to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, don't worry about how much a denarius is actually worth. It doesn't make any difference. What you need to know is this. This is a day's wage. This is what the average worker would get for a 12-hour day working in the vineyard. They make this agreement. You start at 6 in the morning. You work until 6 at night. At the end of the day, you'll get your, your, your pay, a denarius, a fair wage. And that's how it worked. And it's very different than the way we do things today. But these are day laborers. And they lived in a day-by-day -day world. And so they went to work in the morning and they got paid in the evening. And on the way home, they bought the groceries for the next day. And if they didn't work that day, they didn't eat the next day because they didn't have a pantry like my wife has in the basement of our house. You, you, you just got to get paid at the end of the day. So he goes out and he hires workers and he sends them out into his vineyard and then he goes out about the third hour which would be nine o'clock and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace oh there you go man i'm all over that that is my western mindset just jumping all over that phrase they're standing idle a bunch of lazy bums why don't they go get a job what's the matter with these people standing around idle well you hang on to that it's going to come up again just keep that one. So he says to them, verse 4, go into the vineyard, whatever is right, I will give you. Now here you go. He doesn't agree on a particular amount. He says, trust me, I'm going to be fair. This will be a fair wage. I will treat you correctly at the end of the day. So they went and going out again at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. So he goes out at six, he goes out at nine, he goes out at noon, he goes out at three. He apparently has a big enough crop that he needs workers. And so he keeps going back to the marketplace in order to get workers. And he keeps sending them out into the field. And about the 11th hour, five o'clock in the afternoon, he goes again to the, to the place and he says, why are you standing here idle all day? Now, you and I just don't live in this world. I, I remember it growing up as a kid. There was a certain place in our little town that you went first thing in the morning because there was field work to be done. There were harvests that had to be taken care of. And you would go there and you would hope that one of the farmers would want to hire you to go work in the fields. Now, hear this. These people are not lazy people. Have you thought about this? Just put, put your mind around this for just a second. It's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The day started at 6 a.m., and they are still here. They didn't go home at 9 when nobody hired them. They didn't go home at noon when nobody hired them. They didn't go home at 3 when nobody hired them. They stayed because they want to work. So eliminate that kind of preconception that these are lazy people. No. In fact, look at the answer that they give. Why are you standing here? Because nobody hired us. We've been here. We're willing to work, but nobody, nobody took us. He says, go. Go work in my vineyard. So they go for an hour. And then the day's over. And you notice what happens. Evening comes. The owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers, pay their wages. And here you go, beginning with the last. 
first. Remember verse 30? The reversal? I mean, here's the oddity of the whole thing, right? I show up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I want to go home. I want to get to the market. I want to go shopping. I want to take care of things. I don't want to stand around and wait for other people to get paid. I surely have earned the right to get my money first because I showed up first and I got the job first. And they stand there the entire time that he pays the workers that went out at 5 o'clock in reverse order all the way up to them. And that's where it starts getting weird. Hmm. The unexpected. Look what happens. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. They got paid a day's wage for working an hour. This is a pretty good gig, man. I show up, I work one hour, I get a whole day's pay. This is all right. Not bad. And you know what's going through the minds of those people who've been there all day, right? Because they're just like me. Well, Maybe they're not like you, but they are clearly like me, because this is what I would have thought. Man, if he paid people who only worked an hour, an entire day's wage, think what he's going to do for us. We've been out here for 12 hours working. We ought to be worth twice that much. And when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And so they were thankful and they went home and bought their groceries. No, no, that's not what the text says. They did what probably any one of us would do. They grumbled. What's the matter with this guy? We worked all day and we got the same pay as those people who just showed up. You might not ever do that. I guarantee you I would do that. I mean, after all, we're worth it, right? We invested more, we spent more time, we worked harder, we were there. We have it coming that we should get more. Now, I have to confess something to you. When I, when I get to preach at somebody else's church, I can get a little snarky because you can't do anything about it. <laughs> you can't fire me. I've already drank your coffee. So, I mean, you know, what, what is this? I've met people like this in church. They've been here the longest, so they want things their way. We're going to have our music, our color, our seat, our chair, our this, our that, our what, because, well, what? Because we deserve it. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Listen to the text. Listen to what he says. These worked only an hour. You gave them equal pay. Who have borne the burden of the day, the scorching heat. He replied to them, friend, I am done you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You hear it? No, no, it's coming. But think about this. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed? There it is. Remember the first question back up in chapter 19? Is it lawful? Here it is again. Is it lawful for me to do what I want with what I have? I'm the owner of the vineyard. I should be able to do with this whatever I want, right? Am I not allowed? Now listen to this question. Do you begrudge my generosity? You know, I've been doing this church thing for a long time. I didn't grow up in a church, but I've been doing church a long time. And if I'm not careful, I forget that Jesus promised me life and he kept his promise. 
He didn't give me less, and I don't deserve more. We agreed on a denarius. You hear me? When I came to Jesus, he and I made an agreement. I'm coming to you, and you're giving me life. If he chooses to give you life in a different way than he gives me life, that doesn't give me room to start grumbling about how it's supposed to be done. I do not have more right to something else than what he's already promised. And the only reason that ever happens is because I forget just how valuable the promise was that he gave me to start with. When I first became a believer, I understood the grace of God because I did not deserve to be there. But after a while... I deserved it. I had invested. I was in. Now, I know none of you would have that feeling, like maybe you deserve more because you've been longer or done more. But these people did, and sometimes so do I. And I'm fascinated by the question, do you begrudge my generosity? And then we have the reversal, actually. And the last will be first, and the first will be last, and he reverses the reversal from the previous time. And I scratch my head, and I wonder what in the world is going on here. And I look at this parable, and I hear Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a master, who owned a vineyard and was incredibly generous. You hear it? He was incredibly generous. He gave as he wanted to give. He did as he wanted to do, not because people deserved it, not because they worked harder, not because they were around longer, but because he is generous. It was never about the people. It was always about the owner. And if I'm not careful, sometimes I look at my own life and think, I'm not good enough. I'm too far from God. It's the 11th hour. What could he possibly do for me? What would he be willing to do for me? I've been out here way too long with no relationship. You, you ever, do you know some people like that? that? That when they think about coming to church because they've been gone for a long time, they've been away from God maybe their whole life, maybe they're just old, maybe they're in the wrong socioeconomic class, but you begin to wonder, is there any way that God could forgive them? I mean, after all, they're not like us. They're too, and you can fill in the blank, too old, wrong class. Do you begrudge my generosity? I, uh, I had a, an opportunity to do a funeral for a guy named Chuck here just a few years ago. He was a really old guy when I did the funeral. And I want to I read just a little piece of his testimony. In 1987, I had heart bypass surgery in the year 2001, I experienced a heart problem because the veins that they used for the bypass 14 years before had become blocked again. 
The doctor in Quincy said I needed angioplasty with a stent immediately in Springfield. They transported me to Springfield by ambulance arriving in, uh, at, at the hospital late that evening. The procedure was to be performed early the next morning. The bad news was that the doctor said my chances of surviving the operation weren't very good because doing the procedure on such old veins would cause plaque to slough off and block up the veins further down. He told me that I could participate in a test of an experimental instrument that could help keep the veins open. The Lord had put me there at just the right time to save my life. The procedure was a complete success. Although I have always believed in Jesus, I didn't go to church much. I didn't know him very well. But after God gave me through that heart procedure, what God gave me through that heart procedure, I was inspired to turn to Jesus and become a Christian. I was baptized at Madison Park Christian Church at the age of 86. I became a member of Madison Park over the last five years. My life has changed completely. I see now how much God has blessed me over the last 91 years. I have a relationship with Jesus. I am only sorry that I didn't get to know Jesus better sooner. Too old? Can't come to Jesus because you're 86. Been way too long. You're not too anything for Jesus. Now, I didn't understand that early on in my Christian experience. I, I wasn't raised in the church, so I didn't know much about that, but I was, I was converted in a church that was pretty strict about the rules and doing things the way they're supposed to be done. And so if you were a real believer in Jesus, you went to church and you read your Bible and you gave money to the church and you were baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins by somebody who was a believer and you had attendance pins that you could trip on. That's what dictated success. And there was no room for this deathbed confession stuff. I mean, if you waited till the last second to say yes to Jesus, take your chances, bud, because, I mean, you had a whole lifetime to do that. That all changed in 1985. My dad had cancer. My dad had never been to church. I could count the number of times my father was in church on one hand and I have fingers left over. He wasn't antagonistic about the church. He just never met a Christian he could like. Didn't respect believers at all. Didn't know very many, including me. But I got the call that he was not going to live. And so Gail and I went out to Idaho and we walked into the hospital on Monday afternoon and I sat down next to my dad and and I prayed God you got to wake him up he's got to hear about Jesus but he was in such enormous pain and I would sometimes sit there and count 200 250 before he'd finally take another breath and I would say oh God just you just got to take him you got to relieve the pain this is just this is crazy just let him. and about the time i would say you got to let him go i don't no no, no you, you cannot do it. you got to wake him up we got to talk about jesus he needs to know you six o'clock on wednesday morning my father sat up in bed and said the most profound question i've ever been asked in my life can god forgive someone who has ignored his kindness as long as i have 
I wish I could tell you the conversation. I don't remember much about it, except that for one hour I had a chance to talk to my dad about Jesus. He went back into a coma at 7 o'clock, and I didn't see, I didn't have a, a conversation with him again. He died then in October. And I remember standing in front of the mirror, getting ready to go out to the school, sobbing like you sob for the loss of somebody in your life. And I remember pondering that conversation and I was saying to God, God, I know my dad didn't ever go to church. I know my dad never was baptized. I know my dad, my dad never, ever had a relationship with you. It was his last hour. They had, we had a one hour conversation about Jesus. God, if you, if you could somehow in your grace see fit to forgive my father that would be the most amazing act of grace i could possibly imagine and in one of the few times i ever remember my thinking that god was actually talking to me i heard him say so how do you think you're going to get there you think because you're a preacher, because you're a seminary professor, because you read your Bible, because you've spent your life doing this kind of stuff, you think because of what you've done, I'm going to give you salvation? No, he says, if I save you, it's going to be the most amazing act of grace you have ever seen. And I walked out of that room crying for a whole new reason in the absolute confidence that it just is possible that my dad may meet me when I get there. Do you begrudge my generosity, he says. Do, do you think that you have the right to say who gets paid at the end of the day? No, he said, that's my decision. This is not about vineyard workers. This is about the king, the owner of the vineyard. And there was a certain vineyard owner who went out at the 11th hour and he said, you come work in my vineyard. And at the end of the day, he paid them the same. Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you somehow think that there's not room at the table for people just because they came late, they came from the wrong place, they aren't the right kind of folks? See, every week when we come to this table, which is what we're about to do today, we come here in the recognition that this is a mark of God's absolute grace. We're here because not what we've done, but because of him. This whole thing started out with a question about what, what could a man do to inherit eternal life, and it ends up with what God has done to give eternal life. That's where the emphasis lies. And there's room. There's room at that table. About a decade, back in the 1950s, before the West Texas team that made history and they made a movie about the fact that there were five African-American basketball players playing in the NCAA tournament for the first time, 
Before that ever happened, Quincy College then, now Quincy University, had already broken that barrier. Ben Bunbury, Thompson, five African-American men playing for Quincy College were on the floor night after night after night along with five white guys that they would substitute in and out. They were the first black team to play in the NAIA tournament. One night coming home from a road trip, they were actually coming down the Mississippi River and they came to a little town called Lima. It's just a little wide spot in the road north of Quincy. There was the team, there were the cheerleaders, there was an entourage of supporters that traveled with the team and they pulled into Lima and there was a little restaurant in town and I mean they packed out this restaurant. Everybody's sitting down getting ready to eat. And suddenly Coach Forrester got up and said, we're out of here, let's go. Let's go, everybody out, we're leaving. They weren't willing to serve the African-American players. And Coach Forrester understood one of the most fundamental principles in all of life. If not everybody is welcome at this table, then nobody's welcome at this table. Do you hear this parable? Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you dictate who comes to my table? No, this parable says everybody's welcome here. Anybody I invite comes to this table. Father, thank you for being so open to who we are and our needs, not worried about what we do or don't bring with us. Thank you that you have such enormous grace. And forgive us if we ever begrudge your generosity and think that we deserve anything. God, we come to this table together, recognizing that we all belong here. We come here to eat and to drink in the precious, powerful, gracious name of Jesus. Amen.